We read God's Word this evening in Matthew chapter 27. And by reading Matthew 27 and preaching from this chapter, we not only go back to Easter, but we go back to Good Friday, because this is the history of Good Friday. And I'll explain after we read in the introduction why we do that. We're going to begin the reading at verse 19, and the he with which verse 19 begins is Pilate. Pilate. We just asked, whom will you that I release to you? And they said, Pilate, uh, Barabbas. This is the Word of God beginning in verse 19 of Matthew 27. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why, what evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put on his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come into a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots." And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, Come down from the cross. 
Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many, of the bo- and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after His resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many." And that's how far we read God's Word. The text is those last two and a half verses, the end of verse 51, where we read, And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after His resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many." There are very many things that, in connection with the resurrection, are familiar to us, but there's one thing, and that's the thing in our text that is very unfamiliar. Whoever hears of this aspect of the history, that these dead saints, on Sunday morning, after Jesus arose, climbed out of their grave alive now, and went into the city and appeared to many. Probably one of the reasons that we don't know the history post-resurrection is that we forget so quickly that it was Resurrection Sunday last week. And so when we imagine that a minister is going to preach on a resurrection-related text, we may be surprised. But I was very glad to hear through the wall of the sanctuary, one of the prelude pieces that still reminded us of Resurrection Sunday. In the history of Reformed churches, it was very common to preach texts very closely related to all of the history of Jesus, beginning with His birth, and even texts that related to the prophecy of Christ's birth. Those were called Advent sermons. And then on December 25, of course, a sermon about Jesus' birth. And then what we forget, they didn't forget, they preached on the subject of Jesus' circumcision. 
And then for a while, they preached on subjects of his early life, youth, and then many subjects with regard to his ministry for three and a half years. And then come Good Friday, they preached on his death and preceded those Good Friday Sundays on those Good Friday uh, Sundays that preceded Good Friday, texts that anticipated his suffering and death. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday, they preached about his resurrection, as we did last Sunday. And then after his resurrection, they preached a multitude of sermons about what happened after his resurrection, but in that 40-day period that preceded his ascension. Now, Ascension for us this year is May 18, if I'm not mistaken. And then on Ascension Day, they preached on the Ascension of Christ. And then, if they would have been now, on May 28, ten days after Ascension Day, they preached on Pentecost. And by that, they kept in view the whole history of the birth to the death to the Ascension and the return of Jesus Christ. Because we don't do that, we probably forget some of the very important events that took place after Jesus' resurrection and before His ascension. I say again, this being one of them. What is this? This is the shocking but real truth that after Jesus rose from the dead, other people rose from the dead, came out of their graves, and for who knows how long appeared to people in the city of Jerusalem. When graves were opened, saints arose. That's the theme of the sermon this evening. When graves were opened, saints arose. I want to call your attention to that shocking sign And then point out in the second place the antithetical significance. And then in the third place, remind you and me of what the sermon will already have pointed out, that the blessing is restricted. The blessing of this reality is restricted. The shocking sign, the antithetical significance, and the restricted blessing. The facts of this sign are very, very simple, but utterly amazing. Very, very simple. At the time of the crucifixion, remember the crucifixion began at the third hour, nine o'clock, if you look at clocks that way. Continued for three hours in the light until noon, and at noon, the sixth hour, it became dark. And then it was silent, all the way until 3 p.m., at the ninth hour, when we read at the end of the reading that we had this evening, what we read, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Some of them that stood by heard said he's calling for Elias, tried to give him some vinegar on a sponge. And then Jesus cried with a loud voice again and gave up the ghost. And at that moment, At that moment was an earthquake. 
At that moment, God reached down from heaven, as it were, by His hands and took the veil of the temple and from the top to the bottom tore that veil, indicating by that all of the Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices are finished because I came, Jesus, and the graves of many were opened. That's what we don't remember. But that's the simple sign. And after Jesus arose Sunday morning, the saints whose graves were opened on Friday afternoon came to life, came out of their graves, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And that's all we know. That's all the Word of God tells us. The important thing to remember now is that it was not on Friday afternoon that they rose. It was on Friday afternoon that their graves opened. But they had to wait in their graves until Sunday morning when Jesus arose because first Christ and afterwards they that are Christ's is always the principle that applies. First Christ and then because of Christ those that are his. If you would think about it and imagine all of the questions that you'd like to ask that aren't answered, they just keep coming. Keep coming. All kinds of questions. Were the graves that were opened right near Golgotha, the cemetery right there, probably where Jesus was buried, or were the graves that were opened in different parts of the city? We don't know. The Word of God doesn't tell us. Were the people that came out of the graves those who had recently died so that their bodies were not yet decomposed? Or perhaps was the, were some of them who were raised years ago dead and buried? We don't know. The Word of God doesn't tell us. Did the people to whom they appeared recognize them? We might have a hint at that, but the Word of God doesn't tell us that. What did they say? No record of any oral testimony of these who appeared. How long did they stay out of the graves? A day? A week? Forty days, perhaps? Aligning with the appearances of Jesus? The Word of God doesn't tell us. We don't know these things. And the fact that we don't know these things ought not disappoint us because there's enough in this little text that gives us a good picture of not only what happened, but the significance of what happened. So let's point out the elements of the sign, which are six. Six things that the text does clearly teach us. First, by the earthquake that God sent, graves were opened. Very simple. The earth did quake, the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. An earthquake in the Scripture is a sign of God's judgment. An earthquake in the Scripture is a sign of the end. An earthquake is, in Scripture, the sign of the shaking of things that can be shaken, so that those things that can't be shaken will remain. And I'm using the language there of the Apostle in the book of Hebrews, where he says, God promised 
Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. What may be shaken is this in everything we see. And what cannot be shaken is what God has for us in Christ in the heavenly places. That will remain. And that's why the sign, one of the primary signs of the coming of Christ again, is earthquakes. Read the history of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 and so forth. And you'll see that one of the signs that's highlighted that precedes Jesus' coming is an earthquake. That's sensible. An earthquake didn't accompany Jesus' birth, but an earthquake accompanies the culmination of Jesus' work and the finishing of it and indicates He's coming again. God's kingdom is immovable. Now it's by that earthquake that the graves were opened. As you know, the people in Canaan, for the most part, were not buried in graves as we know them. You go to a cemetery now, and you see acres of smooth green grass, sometimes punctuated by a gravestone or perhaps a large vault. But for the most part, the grass is smooth, the gravestone is level with it, and below that gravestone, six feet down, is a large concrete casing in which a casket is placed, in which the body is placed. And over that casket, then, the cap of that concrete casing, and then all of that is covered with dirt. That's not how they buried people in Jesus' day. You read of Jesus' burial in that new tomb that was recently chiseled out of the rock into which Jesus went, but perhaps also had room for others. You think of the cave of Machpelah that Abraham bought as a burying place for him and his relatives, a large cavern probably, inside of which were little holes and openings where many could be buried. It was like that in Lazarus's day too right before Jesus' death and burial. Lazarus was buried in a hole over which a stone was rolled, and Lazarus then came out of that hole. Not that they had to dig him up, but he simply walked out. Now when Christ died and the earth shook, the ground literally ripped apart. The stones were rolled away of some of these, and if they weren't covered by stones, then that's how you children need to picture it. God reached down and with His strong hands ripped open those rocks in many places so that there for all to see were the bodies of people who had died and been buried. He tore the bars away. Death cannot keep her prey. Christ abolished death. And this is a very important testimony of that. So that's the first part of the sign. An earthquake that opened graves. The second is that the bodies then 
came out. They arose. They had life again. Not their souls, because their souls were in heaven. That is, this isn't a testimony of the resurrection of the soul. This is a testimony of the resurrection of the body. And a part of the resurrection, or a foreshadowing of the resurrection, that will be completed at the end of all ages, when our bodies will be raised from the dead and reunited with our souls. Very likely, the bodies came out, were united with the souls that had been in heaven, and they came out of those graves. They were made alive. It's also very likely, though this can't be proved, that this was the final resurrection of these bodies. It wasn't like Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus died, went to the grave, and four days later came out of the grave and finished his life on this earth and died of some other ailment or perhaps of old age sometime in the future. But these were raised with their glorified bodies. One of the hints that lead us in that direction is that they appeared. Appeared. As Jesus appeared and then disappeared, so the word is used here. They appeared. They manifested themselves. Another hint would be that you can't imagine that glorified saints were reunited with their bodies and then stayed here. Those who knew the glory of heaven for years and years now had to live out another life on this earth. That doesn't make sense. But you can't imagine either that at the end of their appearances, sometime, maybe during the night, they snuck back to the cemetery, climbed back into the grave, and went dead again. That doesn't make sense, does it? So we judge that this is the final resurrection of their bodies, so that they with Enoch and Elijah were translated, as it were, and brought up into heaven. First, an earthquake and the opening of the graves. Second, the resurrection of bodies out of those graves. Third, the text says that many arose. Many Now, be careful, this isn't all of the dead who rose at that time. This isn't the general resurrection. That general resurrection awaits when Jesus finally comes again. This was an instance of what would happen. A public showing of what is in store for all of us. But it wasn't the general resurrection. But neither was it a few, three or four. Five or six. The text does not specify, but the text says many. And five isn't many. And ten isn't many. How many? Dozens, perhaps, you ought to think about. Scores, perhaps, you ought to imagine. And that's a very important part of the significance of this sign. Not just a few, but a multitude of people came out of the graves and appeared in the city. In the fourth place, the text says that saints arose. And that's maybe one of the more important elements of this sign. It wasn't a random resurrection of whoever's grave, perhaps, by chance, happened to open. And whoever's grave that was that 
by chance opened, they arose from the dead. No, God was very specific when He reached down His hands and opened up the graves. He opened up the graves of the saints. That is, those who were notable in Jerusalem for their piety. Those who were known for their hope in the coming again of the Messiah. I think of the Annas and the Zacharias's and the Elizabeths. I think of the John the Baptists. Those who lived in the hope of the resurrection. And therefore, because the Bible always relates hope and holiness, they were holy. Holy people. Known for that. I like to imagine that if somebody could have gone around the city with a piece of paper, and if there were markers on these graves, were able to write down the names of those who were now missing, and then would have gone home to try to piece together who it was, they would have come to the conclusion There's a certain kind of people. I don't see any Pharisees in this list. I don't see any Sadducees. I don't see any high priests. I see a certain kind of people. And what unites these people who were raised is their piety, their holiness. And then fifth, we've already said it, now you need to think about it. They appeared... They appeared. They didn't all rise together and then go to some secret woods or garden and have a meeting together. They all individually appeared. Think of that. When Jesus appeared, He showed Himself face to face to Mary. When Jesus appeared, He showed Himself face to face to the disciples in the upper room. Week 1, Sunday. Week 2, Sunday. Jesus saw them. They saw Him. That word is used here. The saints who came out of the grave appeared to others. They came face to face and saw others. And those others saw them. We'll come back to that in a moment when we see the significance of that. But don't fail to see that. And then finally, important element of this sign in the sixth place is that this marvel took place after the resurrection of Christ. This history, though it takes place after the resurrection, is in the history of the crucifixion. It's as as it were, God designed that a little piece of Easter Sunday, and the history post-Easter, is transplanted back into the history of the crucifixion. Now we're going to see because the crucifixion and the resurrection are inseparably connected. But that again, remember, is why we don't remember this history very well. It's there. It's not in Matthew 28. It's not in the last chapter of Luke or Mark or John. It's in Matthew 27. But it is history that takes place after the resurrection. Read the text again. The bodies of those who slept arose and came out of the graves after His resurrection. First Christ, and afterwards those that 
are Christ's. And that brings us to the significance of this amazing sign. It's connected with the cross. There's good reason, I say again, why this history is brought back into the history of the crucifixion. There's a connection that must never be severed between the death of Christ and the resurrection of us. In a very real way, and this is a truism, isn't it? The cross prepares for the resurrection. The resurrection is the completion of the cross. In a very real way, the cross is meaningless apart from the resurrection. And the resurrection is utterly impossible apart from the cross. And the raising of these saints in Matthew 27 is the connecting link, one of the important connecting links between the cross and the resurrection. The cross isn't defeat after which is victory. The cross is the instrument by which there is for us victory. And that's why that just as the cross is both positive and negative in its significance, the resurrection is both positive and negative in its significance. The cross is the redemption of us and the judgment of the world. And the resurrection is a testimony also of our redemption, but of the judgment of the world. So that even on the brightest and happiest Easter's, and the thought of what follows Easter, there's something very, very dark. There's judgment. That's the first significance of this open graves and appearing saints. It speaks judgment. And it does so in the first place because those who appeared were a unique class of people. Saints arose. And you mustn't imagine that that was lost on anyone. Don't misunderstand this illustration, but the clarity of the separation between the saints and the others would be like if today it were only women who were raised from the dead and not one man. No one would miss that. Why just women, you say? Well, that didn't happen, and it's not going to happen, but it was then as clear as if that were the case today to everyone. It was saints, and only saints. There's no part for the unbelieving, and they all knew that. Who were they who were raised from the dead? The chief priests were asking. And let's just imagine that the chief priests and the office bearers all had their own cemetery plot. And they went there and saw none of them open and none of those bodies missing. And let's just imagine they didn't, but all of the pious ones had their own cemetery plot and the chief priests went there and saw 
These are the ones that were raised from the dead. It was that clear. They knew. And the word for them was, not for you is this hope given. The blessing of Christ's resurrection isn't for you who don't trust Him. And the very same message must be proclaimed today. Not for you who are simply members of the church of Christ outwardly, who are here because you were born here and your parents go here. Not for you. Not for you who have no interest in the coming again of the Lord Jesus. Not for you. Not for you who, because you have no interest in the coming again of the Lord Jesus, don't live in holiness because everyone who has this hope in the coming again of Christ is holy, devoted to Him, loves Him, loves His church, loves His people, hates sin, flees from sin. And the hope of the resurrection is only for you. For you. And not for others. We'll come back to that at the very end. And the other part of the judgment of this sign is that it is a terribly plain testimony of the righteousness of the cause of the Lord Jesus. It's a vindication of God. It's what theologians call a theodicy. Now that's not an unimportant word. It's probably not a word that you've heard very often. But it's a very important word. Theodicy simply means the justification of God. The public testimony that God is right. And this is a public testimony that Jesus' cause was right. A theodicy of God. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept as He promised He would. First the angels bring that testimony of the risen Christ. He arose a victor from the dark domain, said the angels. And then Christ Himself testifies of His resurrection. And the people of God know that His cause is vindicated. And now, out from the graves come a crowd of saints publicly testifying in the city of Jerusalem the cause of Christ was the right cause. He's vindicated now by His resurrection and by ours. And all of you who opposed it are going to be defeated. Now go back in your own mind to that history. You remember what happened on the Monday prior to Jesus' crucifixion on Friday? On that Monday, Lazarus was raised from the dead. He became a precursor of the power of Christ. He was one of those signs that vindicated the cause of Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees and the scribes knew that so well. And that's why they said, after they met, very quickly, post-Monday, they said, one man needs to die for all of the people. And what they meant is that we need to put Jesus to death before He does more miracles like that. We can't have it. That Jesus' cause is seen to be God's cause. So they put Jesus to death, planting a seed in the ground. 
And out from the graves come a multitude of his people testifying, you can't defeat my cause in that way. I'm alive. And here's a testimony that I'm alive. All of my people in a marvelous display of my resurrection power are going to come into the city and speak of that. Can you imagine the terror and excitement of the people on Sunday morning? The disciples and a few of them heard of what happened. A few of them saw Jesus, met Him. But what was going on behind the scenes with the chief priests and the Pharisees and the leaders of the people? Well, they had just received the report from the soldiers that Jesus is gone and we don't know how He's gone. And fabricated a story for those soldiers to bring in the city that His disciples came and stole the body and we were sleeping and sorry about that. And now those same leaders who fabricated that story in one of the most sinful cover-ups in all of history have saints appearing as a testimony that the Lord Jesus Christ is really alive. Really alive. Now, this is imagining. But we must imagine because the Word of God says they appeared to many. Now imagine for a moment. And the door that's being knocked on is Pilate. Pilate who washed his hands of all responsibility of Jesus' death. Pilate, whose wife warned him, don't have anything to do with that man. I had terrible dreams because of him in this past night. And Pilate goes to the door and opens it and sees saints. Or imagine, who is there says Herod, Herod, wicked Herod, who complicit with Pilate, was responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus. Who's there? And Pilate gets up, goes to the door, and opens the door, and there stands John the Baptist. Now we don't know. Of course we don't know who they were, who God raised from the dead. But I can't think of any better example of the purpose of Christ's doing this than someone like John the Baptist who would come to someone like Herod as a public testimony. Jesus is alive. And I was only sleeping in Jesus. And I am a testimony to you, John uh, Herod, that your cause is finished. And that the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ is going and going on. Did they need to say anything? We asked the question at the beginning, what did they say? Why doesn't the Word of God tell us what they said? And yet they didn't need to say anything. Their life itself, their presence itself would have been a powerful testimony that Jesus lives and they, that He lives in them. And that's why the Word of God says in the book of Colossians, that the Lord Jesus made an open show of these enemies. Having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And this is one of the ways in which He did it. They could not stop the cause 
of the Lord Jesus. But that's the negative side of the significance of the resurrection of these many saints. Look at the positive side for the people of God and what these living saints now testified to the other living saints. Our cause is vindicated. It was right. And we who died were sleeping in Jesus. Just sleeping. That's why the text uses that word too. Many bodies of the saints which slept arose. But first, the vindication of their cause. Can you imagine the disheartened disciples? Can you imagine all of those to whom Jesus Himself personally didn't appear? He appeared to many. 500 at once, the Word of God says. He appeared to His disciples multiple times. But can you imagine the saints to whom Jesus did not appear who got a visit from one of these dead saints? who said, you wept at my passing. You wept uncontrollably when you laid my body in the grave. But you need to be reminded that when we die, we die simply sleeping in Jesus. And now, what I just experienced, you will too when you die. Our cause is vindicated. And we have no reason to fear death. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Victory. Death is conquered. We will live. But lastly, people of God, I want to come back to that important part of the text that says, the saints which slept arose. The blessings of this sign for us now, just as the blessings for them then were restricted to saints. And be very clear that you don't misunderstand what a saint is. A saint is not someone who's perfect. You mustn't imagine the Roman Catholic view of a saint. They make saints or declare saints of very few people. And say, this man or this woman may be said to be a saint who lived all of their life in almost sinless perfection. We will give them the designation of saint. Not that. Not that. A saint is a child of God, young or old, very simply, who hates sin and loves God. Doesn't live a public life necessarily, maybe a very private life, but he lives in the church and loves the church and lives among God's people and serves them. He hates sin and he loves God's people. That's what a saint is. The saints are the recipients of this blessing. And then don't misunderstand either that it's not because they're saints that they were raised. They were raised because of Jesus' resurrection. But holiness is an evidence that they slept in Jesus. Holiness is an evidence that they lived in Jesus. 
and a holiness of life for you, for yourself, may be one of the testimonies for you that when you die, you will simply go to sleep in Jesus. And very soon, very soon, soon, I in righteousness at last, soon, very soon, Jesus will come again. And now, raised from the dead, not many, but all of God's people unto the resurrection of life. And in your body, this very body, this body, not some other body, but this body, this body for some of you that is very healthy and very strong, very young and very vibrant, and for others of you is getting old and weak and filled with disease and corruption. But this body, your body, will be raised from the dead and reunited with your soul to be in body and soul forever with Jesus. But not you who aren't saints. Not you who don't want anything to do with Jesus. Not you who simply appear here because that's your custom. And this is not designed, dearly beloved brethren in the Lord, to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful. This is designed to remind you who perhaps have been living secretly in unbelief for all these years. Not you. Not you. And this is to call you who have been living secretly in unbelief all these years. You come to Christ. You trust Christ. Because His cause is the right cause. And whatever other cause there may be in the world is wrong and will be defeated. Because He comes again to shake again once more. And if you are not on His side, then your cause is going to be shaken and destroyed in judgment. And the only cause that will remain is the cause of the Son of God. You are called tonight with the rest of God's people. Believe in Him and trust in Him. And then you may live and die in hope of the resurrection again of the dead. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Jesus, for His life, for His suffering, for His death, for His resurrection, His powerful resurrection that applies now to us in our life that we may live in Him and live through Him. And for His life that also applies to our bodies. Weak, decaying, dying bodies. That will soon, Heavenly Father, and we thank Thee for that, will soon be raised up, reunited with our souls, and brought into Thy presence. Wherefore, eternity we will give thanks to Thee. Lord, forgive our sins, forgive our carnal-mindedness, and use Thy Word to strengthen our faith who are believers yet have so much unbelief, and use Thy Word to create faith in Thy people 
who have not yet known the Lord Jesus, in His name we 